0: Pleasure to be with you this morning. This morning, I'd like to preach from one of my favorite stories in Scripture to address really what I see as one of, a ma- one of the major issues in our contemporary cultural moment, which is the deadly sin of envy. But to get there, I'd like to take a little bit of a detour through the t- by talking about the concept of privilege. In recent years, I am certain, I'm almost certain that many of you have encountered this phrase, check your privilege. It's almost blasphemous for someone like me to even mouth these words, for as you can see, I am a white male who is in a traditional marriage with multiple graduate degrees. And according to the no-doubt scientifically reliable survey I took on BuzzFeed, this earns me a very high privilege score. But I think it's important for us to discuss this topic. Check your privilege it is a strong moral rebuke in our society today. It's a challenge to realize one's un or deserved advantages to better sympathize with the struggles of others who are less fortunate in its best iterations it's a call to humility and compassion at its worst it's a power play to shut down persons further divide people groups or hostile hostilely even take goods from others you see i think we have a problem with disparity and people on either side struggle with this those with certain benefits often see no problem with their position, maybe even feel that it is deserved and that they can therefore enjoy these selfishly as the just rewards of their talent and hard work. Those on the other side feel that they deserve better, or at least that the privilege should be disabused of their blessings so that everyone is on an equal footing. One sees that what is, de- what is deserved is their rewards, while the other sees that what is re- deserved is equality. So my question this morning is, is this. How should we view privilege? Why does God seem to raise up some rather than others? What should we do? Uh, or why does God allow and even seem to perpetuate such inequity? What should we do when others or ourselves are blessed with power and favor? How should we view unearned advantages? Are they wrong? Is privilege something to disparage and attempt to discard and take away? We're going to consider some of these questions this morning by looking at the story of one of my favorite biblical figures, the story of Joseph. And consider these questions as you hear, just keep those questions in the back of your mind as you hear Genesis uh, 37. And I've kind of abridged it uh, for our time here this morning. So let me read from Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being seventeen years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons, other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. When he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and his brothers were jealous of him but his father kept the saying in mind now his brothers went to pasture their flocks their father's flock near Shechem and Israel said to Joseph are not your brothers pasturing this flock at Shechem come i will send you to them and he said to them here i am so he said to him go now see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me a word so he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will see. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. It's the word of the Lord. If you don't know much about the book of Genesis, this first book in the Bible, here's a little bit of background of what's going on. This section in biblical history recounts the process God began by forming a people for himself from among the nations. And it mostly focuses in on this one family, this one family who has cosmic consequences. After the great tragedy of the fall, which set the world in disarray, God initiated this world renewal project by calling one man, Abraham, to form a new people whom God would guide, bless with land and children, and use as an instrument to bless the nations. God gave Abraham and his family a high calling, which corresponded with profound promises. And We've reached this final section in the book, chapters 37 through 50, and the focus is on Jacob's immediate family, but mostly on his son, Joseph. So as we reach this final section in Genesis, consider this question. Have the Abrahamic promises been reached? See, God promised Abram that he would make his name great, make him a great nation, dwelling in the promised land, blessed with many children and descendants. And this nation would bless the nations. Jacob and his somewhat large family, they are in the promised land. Jacob maybe thought that he would rest in retirement, but God was not done with them yet. What about blessing the nations? Has this happened? No, not yet. This is still an unfinished story at this point. God is going to move the story forward to that end. And it will take some strange twists and turns, especially here at the beginning. We have this very unimpressive family and an unsavory hero in Joseph. And hatred is tempting to turn this family, threatening to turn this family upside down. The plan at many points seems at jeopardy, but God is at work. It all starts with the foolish favoritism of the father here. Our story begins with the statement that Jacob loved Joseph more than his other brothers. And I'm not going to camp out here since it isn't the main point of the text. The text isn't primarily aiming to teach us about parenting methods, but it would still be remiss not to note the foolishness here. Favoritism is foolish and failed parenting. It can devastate our children, both the favored and the less favored. Our children should never feel more lo- loved more or less than our other children. To illustrate this, um, I asked some of our old friends if I could share their story uh, for the sermon. Their names are Sarah and Billy Jack. My wife and I have known them for some years, and throughout most of that time, they had uh, been trying to have children, like many couples. And they they experienced uh, many of the common struggles that couples face. They had Infertility, miscarriages, and even more tragic was that their first child, Willa Rose, was born stillborn. And they're very public about this and how God was working in them. But after this tragic ordeal, they began to consider uh, the idea that God might be calling them to foster and possibly adopt. So they took a family of four, whom they eventually legally embraced as their own. But a surprise additional blessing happened during that time is that they also got pregnant with a baby boy, who arrived just after the finalization of the adoption process. But here's why I share this story. Do you know how tempting it would be for BJ and Sarah to play favorites with their one and only biological child? But let me tell you what they did instead. With the permission of their adopted children, they gave them new legal names as a symbolic gesture of a new start in this new family. And they named the oldest of their adopted children, Billy Jack the Fourth to carry on the family name, the name that passed through the generations, even though their biological baby in the womb was a boy. You see, friends, there are to be no favorites in our families. That does not reflect the love of our Heavenly Father. And it ruins our families as it does here to the family we're learning about. And really, Jacob should have known better. You see, he himself suffered from his father's favoritism of his brother Esau and he perpetuated the problem of favoritism by preferring rebecca over leah and now, and then rebecca's child over leah's even in this story sin is trickling down through this family and it begins the trajectory of hatred which will threaten to tear this family apart you can understand how his brothers must have felt i think maybe you can relate to this intimately today maybe you have been the subject of an, of the injustice of parental favoritism you are living your life trying to gain your parents' approval or to show them that they were wrong all along. And this just messes up so many things in our life and in our world. Joseph himself doesn't make this situation any better as we've seen. The picture we get of Joseph at this early stage is that of a spoiled brat, I pr- propose to you. Uh, it's not often how he's presented, but I think that's pretty much there. It does, the text doesn't explicitly state this, but that's my view of him. The first thing that we learn uh, that he does is to tell a bad report about his brothers, the text tells us. The nature of this report is much debated. It could be a lie or simply he could be tattling of some sort. Either way, he seems to be just a little too eager to throw his brothers, brothers under the bus. And his brothers hate him for this and the father's favoritism, which is symbolized in his coat. Then Joseph gets these dreams which vividly detail his exaltation over his family. We might be willing to interpret Joseph's motives charitably at this first time. Maybe he's just wanting to tell them what he has seen and process this with them, right? But then the second time, we get a little bit better read on his motives. He is just a little too eager to share this. We know that he, they hated him the first time after the first dream. But, and Joseph, knowing this, gets, upsets his brothers. Uh, What was he thinking, bringing this second dream up right away? He's probably bragging and stoking their anger. Joseph seems to like to shove his privilege and favor in his brother's faces. I wonder how often he wore that robe, right? We don't ever, the text never tells us. Was it just a bathrobe that he kept in the house? Or was it like a cloak that he might don on fancy occasions? Or did he drape it over his clothes every single day? Well, it is apparent that it it functioned as a perpetual reminder of his privileged preferential status in the family. Then Joseph, he he selfishly stays in the safety of his home while his brothers venture into dangerous territory. If he didn't know the book of Genesis very well, the territory of Shechem is very dangerous for Abraham's family. It was a territory just a couple chapters earlier in the book of Genesis where the brothers avenged the rape of their sister Dinah and and those people became the enemies of the the inhabitants there. And his brothers, they see him from far off when he's coming to him. Think about how they recognized him so easily from far away. Just imagine how they recognized him. I wonder if he was wearing that stinking coat once again. You see, what Joseph should have done is used his favored position to serve, which he will later on. But instead, he relishes in his privileged status, and he enjoys it selfishly, and he flaunts it in the face of others and the brothers seethe in hatred. They can't handle the disparity of affection and position that Joseph enjoys. First of all, this is interesting because this is actually uncommon, going against the ancient traditions to exalt the youngest, the younger son in the family. The ancient law of primogeniture was the common practice of giving privis place to the oldest son, which Joseph wasn't. So this was uncommon. But their hatred was exacerbated by the fact that their father loved him more and received these dreams of exaltation then. And they just could not handle this. This is the last straw. This spoiled little brat gets all the attention and privilege. Was their anger and hatred justified? Well, it's hard to say that hatred is ever justified, but maybe you can understand them a little bit. But why did it escalate to the place of wanting to kill him? And here we need to see the sin that drives this story forward. Envy. It's translated here as jealousy, but in Hebrew it can just as easily be translated as envy, and I think the context will show why that is actually a better meaning. Interesting that their attitude uh, toward him begins with hatred, the text tells us, and escalates to envy. I think that's strange. I don't think we would intuitively see envy as more escalated than hatred, but here it is. Envy is distinct from jealousy in that envy refers to those who do not have the good they desire. Jealousy means holding on to something tightly that you have. It can be done in a way that is holy or idolatrous. That is why jealousy can be attributed to God. God is a jealous God. It can be a protective love and therefore praiseworthy. But envy is never praised. Envy is the loser's sin, the posture of the have-nots. They have not what they want and despise those who do. And do you know who, whom we most envy regularly? Near equals in the field of our source of identity. If you base your identity on success and praise in something like sales, you probably aren't comparing yourself against a, you know, a professor's publication record. That doesn't really mean anything to you. It's not the same field. But you also don't compare uh, yourself so much against people so far beyond you, even in your field. See, if you mark your significance by wealth, you probably aren't comparing yourself to Warren Buffett, but your neighbor down the street. If your identity is wrapped up in your kids, their health, happiness, and success, you probably don't compare yourself against some celebrity family, but other moms in your church. If you are a musician, you probably don't compare yourself against Yo-Yo Ma, but your neighbor or your friend from college. If you are a pastor, you probably don't compare yourself against Tim Keller, but maybe the guy you went to seminary with or the pastor who has the cool church in town. Envy is a crippling and destructive sin because people gripped by envy are competing for their identity by comparing themselves against others in a zero-sum game for the goods of life. The envious are disgruntled, joyless, anxious, and angry, driven by a sense of inferiority because of the unequal distribution of goods which constitute their sense of self-worth. They measure their worth comparatively, and deep down they worry that they are not worthy of love, that they have to earn it against their peers. And therefore, they cannot stand, cannot celebrate disparity in skill, beauty, or favor in the areas which are important for their sense of worth. These goods are scarce, and everyone is a rival. If you have this, then that means I don't, and I feel like something is wrong with me. Because envy views life through this lens as inherently competitive, it is also inevitably divisive and destructive. If others have what I feel that I need, then I can't stand them, and I want to take from them, or at least I want them to fail. One of the best depictions of envy is in an old film called Amadeus, from 1984. It chronicles the story of the relationship between two 18th century composers who were rivals of one another, Salieri and Mozart. And I'm guessing if I took a poll here, most of you would know one of them and probably not the other. Salieri devoted himself to God uh, and and his music, asking God to bless his talents. But Mozart, the vulgar pagan, far outshined him. How could God allow this? Salieri's Salieri's envy boiled for the rest of his life. He plotted to take revenge on God and Mozart for this predicament. At one point, in a period of despair, he meets with a priest who is familiar with piano compositions. Uh, Salieri seizes the opportunity to test his fame and plays some of his own tunes. The priest keeps apologizing, I don't know these, I'm so sorry, I don't recognize them. And then Salieri plays one last piece, and the priest lights up, saying, yes, 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 I know this one, I'm so sorry, I didn't know you wrote it. Salieri sadly admits, I didn't, that was Mozart." He drops his head. The priest tries to console him that in God's eyes all men are equal, but Salieri doesn't believe it. He feels inferior not only in talent but in worth and feels that the only way to alleviate his situation is to destroy Mozart. That's what envy does. It feels compelled to do anything it can to get out from under this sense of inferiority, and this usually means somehow sabotaging its rival. Now, we might not actually seek destruction in the same way to this extent, But we do often seek to subtly destroy others and their reputation through things like gossip, ridicule, stirring division, false accusation, slander. What are we trying to do? And even if we don't seek their destruction actively, we might delight in their misfortune passively. This is what is called schadenfreude. Only the Germans could come up with the perfect term for this, right? Schadenfreude means delighting in others' misfortune. Frederick Buechner says this, Envy's trademark is to desire that everyone else be as unsuccessful and unhappy as you are. The movie uh, The Incredibles gives us maybe a more recent and slightly more comic take on this theme, right? Incrediboy was just a normal kid who looked up to the superheroes but wasn't himself one, and it made him mad. He tried to come up with a machine to give everyone superpowers and at the same time wanted to destroy the real superheroes, saying his goal was to bring about a day when, quote, everyone is super so that no one will be. The envious can't stand the disparity when we are on the short side. We have to do something about it. Take them down a notch. In our story here, the big mouth, Joseph, was finally silenced. The exalted one was thrown into a pit. But the question I still ask here, do you think the brothers got what they wanted? No. They likely thought, finally our Father will pay attention to us, give us the affection we long for and deserve, But what happens in the verses that come immediately following our text is that the father committed himself for a long period to mourning. Days, maybe months. They probably received less of his attention, not more. See, stealing favor never works. The only answer is to get out of the envy game completely. Now, what would that look like? Well, probably at least a couple of things. You would be able to celebrate the gifts in others, You could rest in contentment with what God has given you, and you would freely, joyfully serve others with the gifts that you've received. But it all starts with trusting God's plan. This is because envy begins with a lack of contentment with the lot assigned in life by God. This is all over Salieri. He was not even really angry at Mozart. Rather, he hates God for the seemingly unwise and unfair distribution of talent. Why couldn't God give just a little... To the devoted Salieri. Why would he give it all to that petulant Mozart? Joseph's brothers are the same. Their hatred is fueled by their antagonism to God's plan. They do not like the way he has laid things out. They will take things into their own hands. And at this point in the narrative, it seems like God's letting it happen. Where is God in all of this, you should ask? Did you notice that God is actually not mentioned once in, in this narrative? And not even in the verses I skipped over? And throughout the whole long story of Joseph, spanning chapters 37 through 50, God is only recorded to have spoken one time in chapter 46. God seems silent, maybe absent. Is this out of his control? No, God, my friends, is completely in control. He sets in motion a chain of events that look like disaster, but is actually a work of grace. How can we see him at work? I mean, this story is such a mess, right? We have the foolish father, the, the spoiled son, the flaunting favorite, and the brooding brothers. Yeah, I used to be a preacher. I can do alliteration. <laughs> but consider how this story moves forward. What incensed the anger of the brothers the most? The dreams. If they are genuinely prophetic, who sent them? And then consider all the just-so-happened incidences in the story. Joseph meets this random stranger wandering in the field who just so happened to overhear where the brothers were planning on going next. Then Reuben, the brother who wanted to protect Joseph, just so happened to be gone when a band of Ishmaelites just so happened to be passing by and worked out a deal to take Joseph. These incidences are not accidents. God is working out his plan to exalt Joseph and the envious cannot afford it. Then we later learn that as a result of this, Joseph ends up in the house of Potiphar, a captain of Pharaoh's guard. There he is placed strategically in order to rise to power, even though he was sold at first as a slave. Friends, here's my point. You have to believe that God is at work, even in silence. Even in what seems like the foolish and hateful acts of men are running the world. That is the central message of the whole narrative of Joseph, which is a a tight story circling around, building on one main theme, which is found in Genesis 50, verse 20. You meant it for evil, and God meant it for good. We have to apply this to our theme this morning. So we know God is in control, and maybe we understand we need to grow in contentment and celebrate the gifts of others, but that still doesn't get us out of the envy game completely. Still, we could be left with a lack of self-worth deep down. And to be freed from this crippling sickness of comparison, you need to know something, that you are loved in a way that is unconditional and unlimited. Only then can you be freed from the grasp of envy. The only way to escape the envy hamster wheel of manufacturing and manipulating self-worth is by knowing how much God loves you, even though he chooses some for particular roles in this world. Why was Joseph chosen? He was chosen to be exalted to rescue his brothers and bless the nations. That's why Abraham was chosen as well, the one for the many. Privilege and power is always intended to be employed in the service of others. Joseph would learn this lesson, though it would require being taken through a season of serious hardship. God was transforming Joseph through the rejection of his brothers and even placing him in a situation to be used because of that rejection to ultimately rescue them. Look, there is another one who was chosen to be exalted, who was rejected by his brothers, and who was hated by those he would ultimately save. And I'm talking, obviously, about Jesus. He completely transcended the standard games of status and envy because he knew exactly who he was. Though he was the divine, eternal Son of God. He did not count his privilege as something merely to be grasped for himself. No, he associated with the lowly, giving up all his goods, served in profound humility, even the washing the feet of his disciples. Yet he was rejected because of the envy of others. In Matthew 27, you might, you might not know that. Matthew 27, Jesus stands on trial before the crowds and they cry, crucify him, similar to the brothers. Let us kill that dreamer, that one who claims to be the favored Son." In the narrator in Matthew remarks that Pilate knows that this hatred is due to envy. It's fascinating. They can't stand Jesus' claims to the throne. So he was like Joseph, sold for silver and sent to be killed. But through their rejection, God's plan was at work for their redemption. See, Jesus is the true Joseph who did not count his privileges as something to terminate on himself, but to be employed in the service of others. That is the message of Philippians 2. And as a result, every knee will bow to him for their good and joy. He entered into this painful plan because he loved us, because he wanted to rescue those who would reject him. And he loved unto the end, even saying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That's how much you were loved. So we need to check our hearts and trust God in the midst of life's confusing twists and turns. We, when we don't understand why some are lifted up and others are not, when others are blessed in ways we wish we were, when people rise to positions for which they are completely undeserving, We don't know exactly what God is doing, but we know that our Father loves us more than we could ever grasp. And we need to, if we find ourselves in places of privilege, to use it for others. We did not receive our blessings for ourselves, but to participate in God's plan to renew all things, which includes costly service. Those for whom much is given, much is expected. But friends, when you know who you are in Christ, all the blessings that are yours, all the love he has extended toward you, How can you not know how privileged you are? Privilege is defined by undeserved advantages, benefits, and favor. Is this not the definition of grace? Well, you are called beloved sons and daughters of the greatest being of all, God. Your father sent his firstborn to die that you might be rescued from all that ails you, including the sickness of envy. So I encourage you, remember the privileges you have as a child of God, the robes of righteousness you have in Christ, Don't try to grasp what can only be gifted. You are loved by your Heavenly Father, who does not play favorites. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we praise you so much that as our Father, you love us unconditionally without favorites. You sent your Son to die that we might live in your forever family with your name, your privileges, and all the joy that comes with it. Let us rejoice in the love that you have provided for us with a great worth that we can never earn ourselves, but that it is truly given to us in Christ. Let us give our lives in service to you and the world that you love. Amen.